Welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, work-life fit expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, welcome everyone. It's Wednesday, May the 8th, 2017, and I'm very excited to be back this week. We were to have this wonderful co-author with us last week, Amy Slater, and we had to delay, and that's okay. As a lifestyle coach who prides herself in work-life balance strategies, sometimes we have to ebb and flow with life and things need to be changed, and that's okay. So fast forward a week, and here we are. So let me tell you about Amy Slater. I'm very excited because she is a co-author in the Change Book series with myself, and she is in the latest book, book number 14, which is slated, no pun intended, Amy, for July of this year. And Amy has quite a career that I want to interview her about, but let me just let me give you a little glimpse into what she's done. She has over 25 years of leadership and global sales experience, and her focus has been on customer value and expertise in business and marketing. Her mission is to improve corporate culture wherever she is. She has a passion for empowering people to get extraordinary results. In addition to sales strategy and operation, Amy provides transformational coaching services to create an integrated life fueled by positivity and authenticity, two of my favorite words. Amy's also a number one bestseller on Amazon, and the title of her book is called Moments, Magic, Miracles, and Martinis. So without further ado, Amy, welcome to the Change Book Radio Show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, better late than never, right? A week later and a week better for both of us. It is much better, actually, much better for me, so I'm happy to be flexible. Well, and, and on behalf of the Change Book uh, community, which is 250 plus co-authors, uh, we, we sincerely offer the condolences because I know you just recently lost your dad. And I thought that would be a nice way to us to kind of start off our interview because I know your dad was very impactful in your book that you wrote that went number one on Amazon. So could you give us a little insight as to how you decided to come up with this idea and what was your mindset when you were writing this book, Amy? Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you for your condolences. Um, Yeah. So about six years, I would say with, I would say sort of the trifecta of uncertainty. And um, that's why I was so excited when I had an opportunity to write for the change because it really reflects what I've been going through. Well, we all go through change forever, but really some big significant changes in my life over the last. And uh, my father was diagnosed about eight years ago with Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's. And a couple of years ago when I decided to write my book, I wanted to talk about how do you find magic and how do you find little tiny miracles even when you might be going through uncertain times and clearly an illness like dementia and Parkinson's, it can be very uncertain, you know, in terms of somebody's lifespan. And so you're always hanging in the balance. So how do you find 
little bit of magic, even when you're grieving sort of the, the, the long goodbye, as they call um, dementia-type diseases. And so a number of the stories in my book are really about the visits that I had to my father in his field nursing facility and how it was just a joy to be able to feed him. That was really my job when I went there was to feed him because he couldn't feed himself. And how do you find joy in those little moments when it could be pretty devastating to watch your father who had been really this hero figure, very influential in my personal and my professional life, to watch him in a very sad place? And how do you make it a little bit happy? And so that was really part of uh, what I wrote about in my book as well as how do you go through that uncertainty around divorce? And then I had a, uh, have a chronic illness as well. And how did I manage through that? And all the while, how do you make uh, lemonade out of lemons? Such a great attitude uh, to even bring to something like this. And, and I know my background, Amy, is a medical case manager. And I, I worked on many memory care floors. So I also had the privilege of working with many clients, moms, or dads who had dementia, because there is 10 types of dementia, and one of them being unspecified when there's so many presenting symptoms and they can't let the family know which class that it fit into, or the full-fledged disease of Alzheimer's. So I love that you framed and captured that you have to just capture the moments. And I know you shared a story about taking your dad uh, to one place to eat and you cut his hamburger and you just paused and embraced the moment. So take us back to how did you maintain that mindset and how easy was it for you to shift into it and just pause and see your dad? Yeah, I think um, well, it was sort of easy you know, easy doesn't sound like the right word to use, but with him it came very naturally. He was the kind of man that lived not only with a glass, you know, half full, it was actually overflowing. And so his spirit kind of didn't allow me to go someplace else with it. And so when I sat there and I knew I had sort of this hour and a half bit of time with him and I just focused on him. And it was as if there was nothing else that was going on in the world in that moment. And I could tune out everything, whether it's my children or my work or my own problems. It was, I, I knew that I was, I had a limited amount of time. And uh, so that's, that's how I, that's how I focused really. He helped me. I think his spirit, his spirit helped me stay present. And, and I might cry and break down when I left, but in that, in those, moments that I had with him, I really uh, focused on on the positive fact there and that I could give back to him what he so graciously gave to me my whole life. Well, and that's that's just so beautifully spoken. And I'm listening to you and I'm smiling because I I can feel your emotion and I I can feel your, your smile as you're talking about that moment. And I I was taken back by your chapter in the change and you're in number 14 and I didn't mean to make a pun to say it was slated, but it kind of goes well with your last name. It does. does. That's all right. It does. (laughs) Slated for release in July, which is so exciting because you're like the latest and greatest coming off the press. 
And and one of the things that I love about doing the radio show is I get to meet the authors and just have this privilege of speaking with you and getting to know you and bringing your words to life and, and learning who you are as a person and, and what led you to do different things in your life. But I always love to connect authors because there's so much synergy and, and different talents that we all have. So I'm definitely going to connect you with another co-author in the change because you definitely have that familiarity and just that emotional, I'm going to call it emotional deposit for what you've gone through with your dad. So I'm going to be happy to do that for you after. But when I read your chapter, I read it when you sent it to me uh, last week. And then um, I thought, okay, I'm going to leave it for a week and just kind of mull it around. And then I read it again today, midday. And as soon as I saw the title, which is slow down, as a lifestyle coach who loves work-life balance, I thought, oh, I'm excited to, to sink my mind into this. And I love that you started your chapter with a quote from Mark Twain, dance like no one is watching, sing like no one is listening, love like you've never been hurt, and live like it's heaven on earth. I love that quote. But what I want to ask you is, what was your mindset when you decided to join our global community? And then secondly, Amy, where did you go emotionally to write this chapter? Yeah. I um I had heard uh, I had done some reading about about the change theories and it's just so funny because I thought well gosh that's that's life and not only of my book but the premise of my new business so the change I've also gone through massive change I left corporate America as a, an employee at the end of last year and I started my own company the 1st of December, and so when I decided to be a part of the change book, I was going through a massive transformation, and transformation is really a fundamental uh, aspect of what I do in, in, in my business, and of course, change is, uh, you can't avoid change anywhere, and certainly not in your personal or professional life, and so it just sort of hit me, and I thought, well, I've been, I had been asked to, to co-author some other books but they didn't have that same pull and draw to me. And I thought the change, I live, I, I live in that place. And so uh, in terms of this particular chapter around slowing down, I tend to move very fast. And it can be a good thing, and you can be hyperproductive, but then I can, you can crash. And, in fact, um, Make it even on a more personal note. I just came back from some grief counseling that I just started today because of my for my father that hospice you know offers special grief counseling, and really the reason for going is because I move so fast, I sometimes don't slow down enough to take care of myself, and I want to make sure that I do that. And so when when I wrote this, you know, a, a big part of who I am is that of being a mother, and that's what this story really is really about: being a mom and and noticing my own change over time and how I would parent um, my two, two of my three children. I was, they were the same age and I would tell stories at, at, at different times, um, different times in my life. So they were both about 10 when I told the, about the, told about each of their stories, but I was 10 years older <laughs> in the second one. 
And uh, how did I do it differently just by having had a chance to, to slow myself down? I think as moms, we are incredibly hard on ourselves, and I think we strive for perfection. I know many of the women that I see as clients, I think there's, I call it a generational comparison, Amy, because I think that's where it succumbs from. I don't know if it's from our moms or our grandmas or our great grandmas or another outside influence, but there always seems to be some subconscious level of perfection that we need to achieve as mothers. And I resonate with exactly what you're saying. I think we find the greatness when we slow down and pause. And, you know, you use the cliche in your book, in your chapter, in, in book 14, you finally gave credence to the old age old cliche, stop and smell the roses. And I think when we return to the basics of just simple life, and release ourselves from the technology-dependent society we've become, it's really quite a breath of fresh air um, to just sit and embrace the moment and pause. And when you do do that, how does it make you feel? And do you ever have, I have these like self-aha moments where sometimes, you know, if I'm in the washroom and I look in the mirror, like I just have a good belly laugh at myself and just mm-hmm. think, you know, life matters. Stop being so damn yeah. serious. Like it's okay. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, when you were talking, it was when you said stop and smell the roses, which I wrote about, it made me think about yesterday. I was at home with my 12 year old daughter and we'd been inside and doing some things on her iPhone or whatever. And said, let's go for a walk. And she just said, I don't want to go for a walk. I don't want to go for a walk. What are we going to do? It'll be boring. I said, remember the last time I said, let's go on a walk? You were so happy and you said how grateful you were that I took you on a walk. I said, so remember that. She said, I don't want to do it. I said, well, we're going to go. And guess what? We're going to go look at the flowers. We're going to smell the flowers. And we're going to see, see what birds might be out there too. Oh, I don't think we have birds around here. You know, she's finding every excuse. She didn't want to go. She wanted to sit on her phone. And then I said, we're going for a walk. And once again, by the end, she came back. She said, thanks, I'm sorry I was so bratty before. I'm really glad we went on a walk. And years ago, I would have just said, fine, I'm going by myself. And I would have just left her at home and said, fine, you stay here. I'm going. But I knew that it would turn her around because she was apprehensive. She had to go back to her dad's house. Not that it's a bad place to go. She just didn't want to leave me. And I knew that. And so I said, let's take some space. And, well, I want to spend time with you. I said, great, spend time walking with me. And those things can be, you know, just, just in, a, in a moment. But you've got, to, you've got to take them when you can get them. Well, absolutely. I, I hear you. And I know that you and I are, are the, young, the young age of 50. And I, <laughs> I always in, I, I love talking to people that are of the same age because when I think of my childhood – we rode our bikes all over the place. Like we didn't wear helmets. And and when your mom yelled dinner, you know, we went out for dinner and half the time we didn't have a coat on or we didn't go home and put our pants on. And if we were in shorts and we ate peanut butter and we drank out of the garden hose. And I think most of us had ADD or ADHD, but what did they do? They put us outside to burn that energy off and just engage our creativity. Like it's such a different world now, Amy. 
And I just think I, if I had to do it all over again, I would still pick the childhood that I had. How about you? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I certainly would. And I, I loved, I loved my childhood. And it's interesting because my middle daughter who is now 20, so I have 22, 20 and 12, three girls. And my 20 year old daughter years ago, she said, I wish I grew up in Nana and Papa's generation. So her grandparents even, right, in the 50s and 60s. And I remember there was a period of she went off of Facebook for three years in the time when every single friend of hers was on Facebook. And she said, I'm just tired. I'm just tired of all of that. She said, I just want it to be simple. And I think if given the choice, I think this generation would choose a simpler life too. And a lot of times we, we just sort of assume that they're all going to be caught up on it in it. But I think more often than not, when given a choice or just sometimes when not given a choice and when you take that technology away, they're really happy with their life experience letting go of the technology. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I have two girls, um, 19 and 21. And to strike a balance between technology is difficult because that is how their generation communicates. Um, mm. I mean, we, I lived on a farm. We had a party line. So, you know, oh, we yeah. were, we were too long, one short, you know, I'm really dating myself here, but people would just come for a visit and, you know, we, we'd have a meal and, th- you know, throw an extra plate together. It, it was never a problem. And then just sit around and chit chat till the late hours of the evening, which I know some people still embrace that through a dinner party or a family meal. But I, uh, I had a client who I challenged about cell phones and he came up with the best idea. So all the cell phones would get stacked in the middle of the dining room table and they had to be turned off. And if anybody touched them, during the meal, that person had to pay for that whole family's monthly bill. Solve oh, the problem. Wow. Solve the problem so quickly. And then you know what? Eventually, they didn't even come to the table because the kids realized how much they missed just sitting around and chatting about their day and some of their challenges. And it was just that beautiful, uninterrupted family time that families are not afforded now because their lives are too busy. And if they just took a step back to put some simple strategies in place, much like you talk about with your girls in your chapter and what you did for the sleepovers, it just takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of scheduling. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. And, and it's, it's, a little, it's interesting now because it's about scheduling now. When we were young and the things that you described, you didn't arrange a play date, right? That was bizarre. It was, Hey mom, I'm going to so and so's house after school. Okay, great, bye. I'll be home for dinner. It was, it was just easy breezy, and I could walk to my friend's house. My school was walking distance. Everything was really was very close, and and pretty effortless. But today, you know, maybe I took ballet or something. Today, these kids have ballet and French and flute and track and soccer and pop. These kids are so over-scheduled, and that's also part of the reason for writing this chapter about slowing down. If we can set an example for slowing down, then we can, we can do that for our children because 
a lot of these kids because of this hyper-competitive society and the need to, you know, to get into the best high school, to get into the best college, we, I think we drive our kids to be too busy. And we need to model that, that slowing down so that they, they have something to look at and say, oh, you know, and I don't have to do that. And my kids used to say, do I have to take three things? Can I just do one or two? Would you be okay with that? I said, absolutely. I thought you wanted to do it. So let's, let's you know, dial it back a little bit. Well, I agree, and uh, you just made me think of a perfect scenario. This Sunday is Mother's Day, and my oldest daughter has to work, and my youngest daughter is finishing up her college placement. And because it's Mother's Day, uh, they're going to be quite busy, so they asked if she would extend and come in on the Sunday. And the first question they both both said to me was, Mom, are you going to be upset? It's Mother's Day. And I said, I am your mom 365 days of the year, not not just on Mother's Day. And to have a day of rest and quiet and doing whatever I want to do, best gift ever. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Don't worry about entertaining me, you know. Just don't make me do tons of things for you. That's fine. But it's, again, I'm, I'm always threading into their lives the act of simplicity by modeling whether, you know, I'm saying it to them or I'm, you know, giving a nonverbal cue or I'm just modeling it with my behavior. Because I think sometimes materialism can really creep into a really beautiful moment or a special memory that you're trying to create. And Mother's Day isn't about you know, the gifts and, and all of that. Mm. It's very nice that we, you know, get that uh, love and attention extra special on Mother's Day, but I just feel every day is a gift. And having mm-hmm. two healthy children, I give gratitude to that every morning. So they're doing what they love, and that's what I'm fostering with their dad to have them embrace as they become young, young adults because I don't want them to feel they have to, you know, finish college and get a job. And that's the way we were brought up. And it's okay to take a break after college uh-huh. if you're not sure what you want to do. And that's where both my kids are because I think for their age group, life is so competitive. And we, I live in a city where we have a lot of international students. And there's a lot of competition. And I'm telling you this because I think it goes so beautiful with your chapter. I'm just telling them to slow down, pause, think about it, smell the roses. If you want to take a year off, maybe that's what you need to do right now. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't have to be a race. And my middle daughter is at a small private college, highly, highly competitive. And, and she's, it has always been really hard on herself about grades, but finally this year she had called me for some advice, and it was such an interesting twist. She called me for advice because she had a friend, one of her best friends at school, who was stressing herself out. They're juniors in college. And stressing herself out because everybody's getting these fancy internships for Goldman Sachs and all these financing, and this, this gal loved music, and she wanted to maybe do something with her musical talents. Incredibly bright girl. And somehow she felt that that wasn't good enough. And so my daughter called and said, what kind of advice should I give her, Mom? You're so good with that type of advice. She said, because I want to just tell her it's okay. It's not a race. 
And I'm thinking, wow, that's coming out of her mouth. And this is my daughter who is, you know, very hard on herself about getting the best grades and doing this and have an internship in Germany and do these things. Yet she knew enough to say, but, you know, we don't have to all be doing this stuff. And it's nice that, you know, when you can see your own kids, see your own modeling paying off. Uh, and and watching them, you know, uh, learn learn from from change behavior. Well, change is what you and I are all about on many levels. <laughs> I would say. Well, I would say. I, that's why I, I, that's why I, I love I, the fact that there's this book. It's so great. I am with you, and I want to read. Interestingly enough, the paragraph that I chose to read out of your chapter in book 14 is the one about your dad so I would like to read this one paragraph uh, for our listeners because I just love the way you captured the moment and I just I really clearly had a vision in my mind of this day with your dad so here we go okay okay as we sat eating at the outdoor cafe I fed him his pizza and sprite I carefully cut up the pieces of pizza and fed him with a fork. With one hand, I gently held his slightly shaky fingers, and with the other, I carefully nudged the pizza into his open mouth. He gobbled up three pieces, grinning like a child between bites and sips of soda through a straw. I did not rush this time. I spoke to him about great childhood memories, We all laughed, we shared, we were present in the moment. I will cherish every last minute that I have with him and will no longer race by the sadness. Feeding my dad is as much for me as it is for him. We share time. One never knows when it will be the last moment, and I have decided to make each moment count. Amy, that's so beautiful. And I just find it serendipitous that that's the chapter, that's the paragraph out of your chapter. And I, I hope I didn't, I, I hope I didn't make you teary-eyed, but I just no, it was so, not at all. It made me smile because I haven't read it since he passed away, and I smile because um, I had the opportunity uh, to feed him essentially his last meal, not knowing it was his last meal, and I had gone down to visit him when we were told that he, they were going to um, bring in hospice into his care facility. And they said it could be weeks or it could be months. And I lived uh, about a five-hour drive from where he lived. And I said to my mom, I said, well, I'm coming now then. Because weeks, months, I don't want to come out in desperation just to watch him die. And so I drove down. And it was on a Saturday that I saw him and... I had the opportunity to feed him. It took a lot longer, and he was at this point eating pureed food. He couldn't eat, you know, pizza and Sprite. Um, But he had some kind of lovely pureed turkey or something, and I was able to feed him. It took a lot longer. It took about 90 minutes to feed him because he was struggling to know how to swallow. But I got to feed him again, and it was so amazing to just be able to sit and talk to him and tell him, how grateful I was for him to be my dad. And I actually said goodbye that day. Um, you know, basically told him that it was okay that he could let go and how grateful I was for him to be, you know, being my dad. And a week later he died. 
And so I have no regrets. I, I, I knew that I had to stop everything I was doing at home and go visit him. And I didn't know what, how, what amount of time I had, weeks, days, weeks, months. And it turned out I had, it was one week later to the day that, that he passed. And so reading, your reading of this chapter is really nice because I hadn't read it since. And there's something about sharing a meal, even though I wasn't eating at the time, but being able to, to feed, even if it's feeding your parents, um, it really was, uh, was really a great, a great moment to share with him. Well, it's just, it's serendipitous for me because I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a hospice volunteer. And I, and I, uh, yeah, and I also lead um, one of our bereavement groups a couple of times a year. So I love that you had that special moment with your dad. And I love that you had the strength and the courage to say goodbye because a lot of family members have a difficult time telling their loved one that it's okay to go. But sometimes they need to hear that so they can go knowing that we're going to be okay. And Mm -hmm. I want to share with you that, you know, grief has no time lineage. Um, It's 30 years I shared with you this year since I lost my dad, and it doesn't seem like 30 years. But I think the sadness does diminish, but the memory stays as bright as the light. And Mm. I, I always talk to my dad, even to this day, when I ask him decisions, if I'm making big financial decisions, he always leaves me a dime. (laughs) <laughs> so whenever I'm, you know, I'll ask, it doesn't matter if I'm walking to my car or I'm walking into a building. When I ask for a sign of confirmation, you know, hey, dad, what do you think of this? There's always a dime. So I just That's like you, great. I just embrace those moments and I have a really good chuckle. And I had started working with a new company last April and my dad's name was David Martin. And so the day of uh, seeing this client for the first time, I said to my dad, you know, I've got a good feeling about them and I like their corporate presence and I love their philanthropy. And could you just let me know what you think about this? So I was helping them with some different things and they handed me a file and the person's name on the file was David Martin. Oh, my heavens. Wow. And Amy, I just started laughing, and, and they're looking at me going, what's so funny? And I had to explain it because I thought, I think, you know, and the one girl was like, you're giving me goosebumps. And I said, well, oh, ask, my gosh, you shall receive, right? That is crazy. And, you know, it's really interesting that you say those things because, um, as I told you, I talked with a hospice count because I can see him and feel him now in ways I couldn't when he was alive. And that's what's so interesting is that, you know, while his body is gone, his spirit was set free, but it was set free to go wherever it wants. And so now when I sit or I close my eyes or I take a minute to slow down and pause, I feel him. Well, I didn't feel, I couldn't feel him before because he was trapped in that, that ill body. And it's just been fascinating. You know, my kids are dreaming a ton about him, and they haven't seen him in quite some time, and they're dreaming about him. And I feel him and see him in my, you know, when I close my eyes in ways that I couldn't when he was alive just, you know, just a month ago. And so it's almost like a, it's a gift in many ways. When you have someone that's so long, 
uh, it's different, you know, there's some different kind of grief, I'm sure, when it's sudden death. But this was something that was a long time coming. So it's almost been uh, an amazing gift to me that I, in a way I got my father back. And I know a lot of families who feel the same way because I think dementia does take that that person away from a cognitive and emotional perspective. And, and you know, physically you're looking at your dad and, and, and you're, like you so beautifully wrote in your chapter, you were with your dad that day eating and you were finding those glimpses and those moments of your dad, especially when he was smiling and thoroughly enjoying mm-hmm. the pizza. How do you think is a, uh, or what do you think about compassion fatigue? And do you feel that you were witness to that during your hospice time? Or do you think you were able to manage it because you were a far enough drive away? Can you just give us a little insight onto how you kind of manage that? Or did you manage it? Yeah, I mean, I have to say the where I'm so grateful is that my dad, the hospice was only there for about a week. Literally, they they essentially came in the day before I got there, and then he died a week later. And so when, you know, as you know the terms because of what you do as a volunteer, as far as my dad actively dying, it was about five days. And so while he was in a care facility for two years, that was very draining and exhausting because – and then – you feel like you're always on high alert, and so I think your body, there's some sort of, you know, I think biochemical toxins that your body is always on edge that every time I saw my mom's phone number came in, I thought, is this the call? Is this the call? Is this the call? And that happened for years. And then especially those last seven days of his life when I knew hospice was there and my dad was no longer eating, I I did not sleep well at all because I was wanting to make sure that I would hear the phone if it rang. Uh, so, yeah, it does take a toll, and I'm really um, I feel fortunate that we didn't have to go through that active dying phase for more than a, than a week, because that would have that really would have taken more of a toll on us, and we were already, you know, and my mom in particular already exhausted from that sort of ongoing uncertainty of how long he would be here. It's compassion fatigue is exhausting and you kind of fall into this autopilot mode and we do that as moms and we do what needs to get done unbeknownst to what we're doing to our whole self at the time. So I'm thankful that it was only about a week for you, but what a gift for you to now share with someone who you may have as a coach to know personally what what they're going through and just strategies of, of moving on because it's just another skill set that you've kind of put in your coaching toolkit. So let me segue a little bit and tell us about how you decided to start up being a coach and what were some of your challenges when you decided to do that? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. I sort of fell into it Um along the same lines as how I ended up writing my book. But through my divorce about six years ago, I happened to uh, get to go to this great um, uh, conference and a guy was speaking um, on stage about mental toughness. And he was not, he called himself a mental toughness coach. 
and it was a lot of stuff around positive mindset, and I was going through, you know, just hellacious experience with divorce. Not that it was a necessarily bad divorce, but what divorce is good? Okay, divorce by nature is not good. <laughs> so I was just going through a really turbulent time, and um, I reached out to him, and I said, how much I loved his talk and everything. I said, I want to do what you do. And I was, you know, working in a corporate baton as a sales leader. And he said, great. And he told me about coaching with him. I said, but I can't really afford it. I'm going to divorce. He says, okay. He says, but, you know, when you're ready, let's talk again. So another six months went by, and I talked to him again, kind of pro bono. And he says, what is it that you would want to do if we spent time coaching? I said, I want you to help me become a coach. And, again, I couldn't really afford it. Well, finally, three years after that first meeting with him, I hired him as my coach. And I said, I want to be a coach. And so I did all of that while I was still employed. And, um, and I just, I said, who, who am I to be a coach? What credentials do I have? And all that self-doubt talk, you know, very much about, I'm sure, that we talked about earlier. And all this self-doubt. And he said, well, so we worked at all the reasons why I was telling people I was a coach before I was one. I just started telling people I was a coach. And then I started coaching on nights and weekends. And then I joined a coaching website like com for coaches. And then I got hired by a company to come in and coach three attorneys. And then I got hired by all these other people. And I was doing this all nights and weekends. And it got very exhausting until finally um, I left my job. And not only do I do coaching, but I also do consulting strategy uh, and sales, sales strategy consulting. And then I also do motivational public speaking. And as you and I talked about, as we talked about earlier, you know, why the change? Why was I so interested? Because really the foundation of my business is now all about transformation, business transformation, personal transformation, and transformation through motivation. And uh, that's kind of how I got into this. Well, and it's like me. I... I do not have my certification as a coach, but like you, the life experience and academic experience and work or vocational experience and just what we bring to the table and you use it in your biography, your positivity, your authenticity, people want real life coaching. And like you, I closed my medical practice in 2011 and I got into business consulting and coaching and I was quickly getting burnt out again. And I thought, what am I doing here? Now I choose who I want to work with and I choose how many, how many times a year I want to speak because I don't want to go back to that level of burnout because as you've now witnessed through your chapter and and the beautiful time with your dad, this isn't a dress rehearsal for us. Like we're here for a short time. We don't know when we're going to be called. And I just think that it's really important that sometimes people do slow down and pause and really figure out what they want to do. And I know everyone has self-doubt and fear, but it's more important if you can look inward and find out the why. And Mm -hmm. I know that that's integrated strategies that you use in your coaching, but what do you think? I'm, I'm all about academia. Don't get me wrong. I have friends that have so many initials after their name. I call my one friend Mary Alphabet. But you know what? They dropped her and I in the middle of nowhere with no money. 
I would get home. I do not know that she would get home. And she laughs because she says to me, I don't have the quick thinking, the quick wit, the street smarts that you have. So I think there's a place for academia, but I also think that people want a no nonsense, no bullshit, not to offend our Uh listeners, coach (laughs) who's not going to break their, their bank account and really give them some coaching that's going to transform them and do like you're talking about the work that you're doing. You want to find out from your clients what they want, where they want to go, and you're going to get them there. Yeah, the very first question I ask them, and, and I do fully agree with you because I have a, a bachelor's degree from a from UC Berkeley, a great, wonderful school, and that's the only credential I have. And then I have 25 years of great work experience coaching people in sales and all that kind of stuff. But the very first question I ask people when I coach them on the very first session, the very first thing I ask, how happy are you on a scale of zero to 10? How happy are you? And then we go from there because it all comes from, if, if being crazy and super busy and all those things makes that person extremely happy, you know, what are the levers that we need to pull, push and pull in order to change the happiness quotient? And what are those factors in your life that make you the happiest? And let's make sure that you're doing those things. Because if you're not, then why are you doing what you're doing if you're not happy? And I just start with that simple question. And I didn't need any special certification to ask that question. It's really come from my own, from my own experience and how my life was changed when I decided to do what made me happy. Well, and the synergy of common sense, right, Amy? Like, who doesn't want relatability from someone who's been there, done that? Here's what we need to do to get you out of this. Mm-hmm. Simplicity, yeah, exactly. authenticity, common sense. I mean, three of my favorite words. And and I know that you. I see a lot of unhappy people. I see a lot of unwell people. And that's one of the reasons I closed my case management practice. And just to share with you, I didn't get to finish my bachelor's because my dad died. Mm, and right. I, was, I wasn't afforded the opportunity to finish. Um, my mom was a mess. Uh, I had a very codependent mom. And I had to grow up very quickly at 21. So what I did was over the years, I came back to school and I just did what I needed to do. And I have so many friends in the academic world, Amy, that say to me, why don't you go and sit with a counselor because you have a degree in all those courses. It's not important to me. No, I know who isn't. I am. I know what my skill set is. I, I'm a busy coach, but I like you there's a certain caliber of clientele that I want to work with. And I love to start with the simple questions, much like you, and you know, who's going to do the work and who isn't. And I won't take it on anyone who won't do the work simple for the reason. I don't want to waste their money. I I have that authenticity level of the way I practice as a coach. Yep. Yeah. And I just think Uh, it's so important. I'm the same way. Yeah, they've got, to, they've got to be invested. Someone has to be invested in it, and um, and nobody really nobody really cares about it. Certainly, in what in what we do, and they shouldn't. And anybody who does care overly about any degree or certification isn't necessarily someone I need to work with. Exactly. 
Well, Amy, I'm, I, I'm every week. I'm so blown away with the serendipity that happens with the wonderful co-authors and the change and how much we have in common. So I look forward to our future chats, but let us know what's, what's on the rest of the calendar for 2017 for Amy Slater. Oh boy. So, uh, a lot as well. So I'm working with a number of different clients, both on a coaching standpoint as well as consulting. So I'm doing uh, some consulting in the areas of client success, helping organizations figure out how to make sure that their client engagements are, uh, you know, well managed and well understood. And really, I'd have to say for 2017, for me, it's sort of the year about human connection in all aspects of business and, and personal and professional life. It's the value of human connection. And so probably we'll be doing some more things on the speaking circuit. I have a few things uh, up my sleeve but not confirmed yet uh, in some different areas. One might be in the Bahamas. It was a rescheduled event from last year. They haven't picked the date, which is for an Empowering Women Summit that I will be doing. I also uh, will likely be doing uh, some panel discussions at Google around diversity and inclusion, which I'm also very passionate about. So some pretty exciting things uh, on on the horizon. I've got my daughter, my oldest daughter, is graduating from college uh, from University of Oregon, so we're very excited about that. And uh, I think the year is going to fly by. My father's memorial service is in a couple of weeks. I will be officiating his service, which I'm honored to do, and um, I'm very, very excited to see all these people that have such special memories of him. Well, that's beautiful. Are you officiating and doing a eulogy for your dad? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm officiating and then separately doing my own eulogy. Uh, yeah, I'm doing both. Well, there, there's another thing on the list. I gave the <laughs> eulogy at, at my dad's funeral. So you know what my best advice is? Wear white because everybody wanted me to be in black. And I thought, you know, yeah. back in 1987, I thought, no, I'm celebrating life and the greatness of this yeah. man. And to many, yeah. many attendees chagrin, I was white and bright as a light. And what mm-hmm. a beautiful, beautiful experience for you. And he will be there with you, Amy. And just what a lovely tribute to your dad. Yeah, I'm well, looking forward to it. My mom is wearing white, believe it or not. My mom says she's wearing off-white. She says, I'm wearing white, which is well, amazing for, for her, her to say that. So it's great. It's really great. Well, I want to welcome you to our global community within the Change Book series, and please reach out. Uh, there's over 250 amazing people in over 26 countries for you to connect with, and you can be as busy as you want to be, and the alliances and the mentorship, but more importantly, the friendships that you will develop in this community are second to none. And I just really want to thank you for spending your time with me tonight. And I love that we slowed down and ebbed and flowed and did it a week later. And I think it's probably twice as good as it would have been last Wednesday. I think so too. I thank you so much. I'm so grateful and um, wonderful to to know you and I look forward to us to staying in touch. Me as well. And all the best. Uh, with your dad's service and I, I look forward to hearing how fabulous your, your offering and uh, of your eulogy is going to be in his memory. So you take care and thanks again, Amy. Thank you. Okay. Good night, Deb. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Just a wonderful interview with Amy Slater uh, from book number 14. 
and her chapter is called Slow Down, and I can't wait for all of you to read it. It's just a nice reminder of sometimes we need to just stop and pause and be open and grateful to what we have, and as Amy says, to embrace and give credence to the old cliche of stopping and smelling the roses. So I am back this week on Wednesday, May the 10th, and I'm very excited because we are interviewing Andy Craig from book number three. I love the the diversity each week, how I just spoke with Amy, who's in book 14, that it's not even hot off the press, and then... On Wednesday, I'll be speaking with someone from book three, which seems like so long ago. So I want to thank you for spending time with me tonight on the Change Book Radio Show and just give thanks and gratitude to Jim Britt and to Jim Lutz for putting such a great vision together and bringing authors and speakers and coaches from all over the globe together to share their wisdom in each book, which has 20 co-authors from all over the globe. So this is Deb Crow from the Change Book Radio Show on Monday, May the 8th, and I look forward to being back with you on Wednesday, May the 10th. Take care, everyone.